Hey everybody, welcome to Studio HFL. I'm your host, Larry Powell, and thanks again for joining me for another interview with another terrific guest. Today's guest is composer Jim Stevenson, and this is HFL 107. Of course, you can listen to these interviews on any podcast platform, but now you have the option to also watch them on the Studio HFL YouTube channel. Uh, we're about 130 subscribers at this point. It'd be great to get to 150. If you guys can help with that, I would appreciate it. You can simply get there and do that by going to YouTube channel and subscribing. I'd also encourage you to go to Apple Podcast and leave a star rating and a review. You can follow me on Facebook and Instagram at Studio HFL. And if you'd like to get the newsletter, you can go to StudioHFL.com and sign up for the newsletter and find out some other great information and also visit the merchandise store and buy some shirts. Here's a huge shout out to my Patreon patrons for their generous support of the show. Thank you all very much for your continued support. And if you would like to become a part of the Studio HFL community, you can go to patreon.com slash studiohfl and you can choose from four different tiers of support and you can find out the benefits uh, for each one of those tiers. And now a word from my show sponsors. Pickett Blackburn has established themselves as a top-tier resource for trumpet players. There's an incredible line of mouthpieces, both custom and stock, that you can choose from with expert guidance from Eric Murine and, of course, from Peter Pickett. And the Blackburn trumpets are the choice of pros like Vince Martino and David Hickman. Design, execution, delivery, and customer service-driven. Find out more at picketblackburn.com. Brass players can be kind of picky when it comes to cases, perhaps even more so than other musicians. If you have an idea for a custom case, then Messina Covers has your solution for completely custom case designs, even down to a wide variety of color schemes. Don't forget about options for mouthpiece pouches or pretty much anything you'd want to keep protected in a custom case. Check them out at messinacovers.net. One of the great things about small business is that you get the opportunity to provide exceptional customer service while delivering exceptional products. And that's exactly what Carl Hammond does at Hammond Design. He provides a line of stock mouthpieces for trumpet, cornet, mellophone, trombone, and tuba, and custom orders for all of those plus flugelhorn. All made possible because Carl listens to exactly what you want and then makes a piece exactly to your specs. Everything is better in HD. Find out more at carlhammonddesign.com. The Eastman Music Company has become a force to be reckoned with by manufacturing, delivering high-quality instruments across the board. Eastman Winds provides a line of brass instruments from beginner to pro, and you know they are invested in the quality of every instrument when the one and only Doc Severinsen designed their beginner trumpet model. Find out more at eastmanwinds.com. S.E. Shires, another division of the Eastman Music Company, offers a complete line of brass instruments for the discerning musician. Stock options are available, but custom orders are where Shires has made their mark. Myself, as both an Eastman and a Shires artist, I can attest to the quality of the horn in my hands no matter where I am and no matter what performance situation. You can find out more at seshires.com. Now, a little bit about Jim before we get into the interview. If you have yet to have experienced any of Jim's works, either as a performer or from the audience perspective, you need to change that ASAP. Jim is a reformed trumpet player, as you'll find out, and his writing is fresh, fun to play and listen to, and is really well conceived. There are three pieces that are my favorites of his, and those are an educational piece titled Compose Yourself, a piece written for and recorded by Rex Richardson 
titled Rextreme. And the third is called The Devil's Tale, which is a companion to Stravinsky's L'Histoire de Soldat. You definitely need to check that one out. And now on to my interview with Jim Stevenson. Uh, the time zone thing, I keep forgetting. And so I put it down as two o'clock and then I thought, wait a second, was that two o'clock his time? And then I looked back at, and it says three o'clock and I'm like, well, maybe it was three o'clock his time, you know, and well, here we are, you know, it, here we are. am I an hour off? Yeah. Uh, uh, no, I mean, okay. is this is this what we had planned? <laughs> works, works fine for me. Yeah, it's like the first time I ever tried to learn transposition, right? Um, oh my gosh, <clears throat> when was that? Do you remember? I, I remember just I remember distinctly the first time I encountered transposition. Okay, you go first. I want to <laughs> I want to hear what <laughs> what yours was. I was at Interlochen, and I was uh, so it was in the summer of. 83. So I'm 14 years old. And I sat down to play uh, Tchaikovsky's Fifth Symphony. I don't know if you know uh, Jeff Work, trumpet player. Jeff, I know the uh, name. Uh -huh. He's principal trumpet in Oregon right now. So I'm sitting next to him, and he, he's three years older than me or so. And I looked over and I said, because we always started right on Monday morning, and then we'd read the rest of the week and play a concert on Sunday. And I said, what the heck is trumpet in A? And he said, you're going to have to find out really quickly. <laughs> so it wasn't even, it wasn't even, uh, you know, playing a B flat part on C trumpet or it was just like immediately into trumpet in A. I was like, what? So anyway, what was yours? Uh, well, it was uh, maybe 1984, 85. And uh, it was one of my first lessons in college where all of a sudden, and I, I had no idea yeah. what was going on, and it just it took forever. And, you know, it's like putting your shoes on the wrong feet. You know, it yeah. feels wrong. <laughs> you just stumble all over the place, and uh, eventually you learn how to do it. But it was um, – so trumpet in A was my nemesis for a long time until I was assigned trumpet in E. Who, who thinks it could get worse than A, right? Now are we talking B flat trumpet or C trumpet? Oh, yeah. Oh, I, I yeah. didn't have a sea trumpet for a long time. So okay, so yeah, that's awful. Yeah, that's the worst. You can't pull your slide out far enough or push it in far <laughs> enough to <laughs> to accommodate that one, right? <laughs> no, you cannot. I'm trying to think if there's a worse one, but um, anyway, we we, uh, we digress or I digress. I don't know. No, no, this is great. So, well, thanks for the interview. It's been fun. <laughs> yeah, good. Uh, nice chat with you. I think you got some good material. <laughs> Thanks, so. I'll have to fill a little bit, but you know, so, well, let me do a formal welcome. You know, this is the case with these interviews is I usually forget to actually welcome somebody uh, to the program, even though it's not live, but uh, you want to, you want to go by James or Jim? Jim, please. Yeah. So Jim Stevenson, welcome to Studio HFL. I'm glad to have you here. Thank you very much, Larry. I will try my best. Wait, is it higher, faster, louder, right? HFL? Uh, yes. That's where it started. And I changed it um, a couple of months ago to hear from legends. Oh, okay. I like, well, how about, I don't fit the legends part, so I'd have to change it again, I'm afraid. Well, okay, so <laughs> the, the other part of the byline is interviewing legends and legends in the making. So you, you might fit that second category then. I'll, I'll do my best. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, I'm sorry I didn't digress, but glad to be here. Thanks for having me. 
So, you know, um, there's so many great people in, in the trumpet world, and I'm just getting beyond. I, you know, I kind of limited myself to trumpet players to begin with. And then I thought, man, you know, Joe Alessi would be a good interview. You know, and then you get outside of the, the trumpet world, and then you start thinking, man, some of these composer guys are pretty interesting, too. You know, I'm sure they would have something. And, we'll, we'll see. Well, but see, the caveat here is you were actually a trumpet player first. So it's yeah. the best of both worlds. I definitely was very much a trumpet player, and still to this day, I'm surprised I'm speaking as only a composer. It kind of surprises me still. You know, it, it's funny, in our, in our back and forth this past week setting this up, you reminded me that, well, I, I didn't know this, actually. You said, I don't play trumpet anymore. I didn't know that. Yeah. Uh, so this might be a good place to start. When did that, when did that case close and you, and you shoved it under the bed? Uh, officially, okay, so I moved to Illinois the short of it is that I used to play in an orchestra and we quit in 2007 when I'd become a full-time composer. So at that point, I said to myself, if I'm going to be a composer, it's not going to be very efficient to keep trying to practice trumpet every day because what's the point? So I went full head of steam into composing. The trumpet did, as you say, uh, pretty much go under the bed. Um, that being said, I did play in quotes, a couple of Easter gigs in those next couple of years. And so I would get the trumpet out, you know, in February of that Easter year and try to shape. Uh, and then finally, that went uh, away as well, as it should have. And uh, so with the, with, uh, there have been a couple attempts to change my embouchure and figure out how to play the trumpet once and for all. Um, since becoming a composer, but that literally is like two weeks on my face once a year, and then I give up again. So that's kind of where I'm at. Mm -hmm. So, um, was that difficult to do? Which part to quit? No, yeah, just to set that aside. I mean, you obviously loved it to do it as long as you did. Oh my gosh, yeah. Uh, it. I would say that if I wasn't trying to launch a career from scratch as a composer, then I probably would have missed trumpet. You know, I, I certainly missed it, but I was so busy. And knock on wood, I'm still very busy. So I, I've had this nice distraction from missing the trumpet. So um, I do wish I could pull out the horn and play things I've written or test things I'm wanting to write, um, but I just can't. I mean, even like a month ago, my daughter was, um, she's a singer-songwriter. Actually, two of my daughters are, but this, in this case, one of my daughters was wanting to incorporate a solo jazz trumpet into one of her songs. And she said, come on, Dad, get your horn out. You know, and I did. I got my horn out, and she pushed the red button, and whatever, hit the record button, and I tried playing, and it was so bad. <laughs> and you know it's bad when your daughter even looks at you and says, Okay, let's let's uh, look for plan B. <laughs> so uh, the the best result was that Rex Richardson recorded the solo for it instead. You know, I yeah. called him up and said, "Hey, Rex," and he did it. And so yeah. she got a great trumpet solo out of it. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Uh, do you know the name Brian Balmages? Of course. Oh my gosh, yes. Yeah. <clears throat> Pardon me. <clears throat> Brian, and I, we're good friends. <clears throat> 
Sorry about that. At least That's I, all right. I, I know the editor. I know how I, who I can speak to. <laughs> Uh, Brian uh, comes to Indy to record for FJH, and I've been lucky to be on a number of his sessions. Yeah. Great stuff, a lot of fun to play, and barely chatted with him. But he said the same thing, like Easter, Christmas and Easter. You know, he gets the horn out just long enough to get, get his chops back in shape just to get through some of those holiday things. Well, you asked if I know Brian Ballmages, um, first of all. I've heard him play, and so I'm jealous of him because he can still do it. I can't. I mean, if I try to play, I literally can't do it. I, I suffered some injuries, and the chops just aren't there. But uh, you know, we, Brian and I have a relatively similar path in a way in that you know, we're both trumpet players and became composers. But he, the Easter gig that you reference is actually at the church that I used to play oh. in, in Naples, Florida. So Small world. Holy he man. took he took over after I left town, and uh, they're much happier to have him. But uh, so, yeah, the world is very small in that way. And, and yeah. Brian, well, he'll often send me a picture of where he is uh, on that sunrise gig. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Say, hey, miss you. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, well, what's life like for you these days? I mean, uh, you know, sometimes people think about composers being hermits and secluded out in, you know, some cabin in the woods. Although everybody is secluded out in the, you know, being right. a hermit these days. Right. Yeah. It, it, I mean, in one sense, it's, it is very similar um, to what our lives are usually like, but uh, there's no travel involved, obviously, now. So even more secluded than ever, which has had a couple pluses. I've been really able to focus on some projects without the uh, <clears throat> distractions of traveling. I don't like to use the word distraction because I love traveling, but you know, it does take away from your time. Um, but life has been really fun and uh, rewarding as a composer. And I want to say the word rewarding. I just mean, um, life. It's just, it's fulfilling something I didn't even know needed to be fulfilled. Um, just this, late in life interest to create music from scratch and be in charge of the whole results and um, invent things, uh, you know, slowly improvise and and invent things and put them on paper and and see where they can go. It's just so cool to, to start something you have no idea where it's going to go. And then pretty soon the piece is telling you what it needs to do. And you kind of just, you make friends with this piece of music you're writing and you have this relationship for a month or whatever, and then you put it away and move on to the next thing or send it off. But uh, I'm, I'm happy to say I'm fairly busy and working on what I love about my job is job in quotes again. Um, what I love about my career, my life, whatever, is just the variety of things I get to do. Um, I mean, you know, you play many styles. Uh, and so as a composer, I get to, I mean, I just finished the ballet score and next time writing just some simple pieces for, uh, I, I don't mean simple, but relative to a ballet score and you know, French horn and piano. Yeah. And I wrote, I just finished some band pieces and I get to write a piano concerto soon. And you know, it's just all these different things that keep me from getting too bored and stuck in a rut. So very similar to playing lots of different gigs. Um, I got to go back to a comment you made. You said late in life. Now, I, I, if, I, doing the math and talking about when you were 14, I think you're a few years younger than me. And I can say, 
this is not late in life. <laughs> we've hopefully we've got a long way to go before we get to actually use use that statement. But I I know what you mean. Uh, yeah, I, I I don't actually remember how I put it, but I um, you know I became a full time composer at age thirty, and that feels feels a little bit over the hill when you look down at the not down when you look at these um, I meant down in age at the 21-year-olds who are just getting out of school or 25 they've got their doctorate and they're chilling. You know, they're just, they're writing this fresh stuff and it's great and they're, you know, getting uh, a great following as they should. And you're like, man, I didn't even start until I was yeah. 38, really. So You know, I, that reminds me, I had a freshman come into the University of Indianapolis this past year and a uh, trumpet uh, music education major. And... In a couple of lessons, uh, she goes, you know, I've been writing these things. And I'm like, really, can I hear? She goes, I don't really share it with anybody. So I finally convinced her. I said, email me. I'll, I'll listen. Well, it was really good stuff. And then I said, you need to take this to, uh, to our uh, composer faculty, composition faculty. And the next thing I know, right, she's, she's working harder and more feverishly on the composition aspect than her trumpet lessons <laughs> you know but i'm thinking she's she's 18 and she's got all these ideas but no idea how to get it out right yeah. Yeah. and i think um so i guess what i'm saying is when did that composition bug when did you have these ideas start to be like hey you got to get me out of the head and onto paper um well first of all i have to commend you for for uh getting that music from her and checking it out because sometimes I know in my case, you know, what we composers need is just that little bit of encouragement from somebody else because it's so inside your own head and you have no, you know, it's your baby and you don't know if it's good. And you're not only are you competing in quotes again against um, all your colleagues, but you know, you've got Beethoven and, Mozart and all the dead composers that right. everybody's still playing. And you're like, who am I to think that I can do anything like that? So bravo to you to giving her the encouragement because you might have unleashed a monster. And then now she I did. <laughs> it was like fanning the flames, you know? I mean, it was just, yeah. 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 In my case, I started um, completely by accident because I was, uh, I had joined the Naples Philharmonic, that aforementioned orchestra that I uh, talked about. Uh, when I was 21 and um, thought I was on my way to being a trumpet player forever and wanted to be a trumpet player forever. But our brass quintet was doing educational concerts and we just needed something to play for these kids. We were sick of playing Bang and Sanger Leader and, and uh, uh, William Tell and um, all the other standards that we all know in the brass quintet world. And uh, somebody said, we should do something these kids really love. Why don't we do a Disney tune? And, and for some reason, I said, I'll do it. And I arranged, um, so this is Opus 1 for me. I arranged, uh, you know, Under the Sea, the popular yeah. Disney, you know, yeah. from uh, Little Mermaid. Yeah. And I sat down at my desk and I just was like, wow, this is fun. This is really cool. Hey, why don't I give the solo lines of the tuba? Let them do something. Then every, you know, whatever. It was just fun to mess around with that little, with the musical algorithms, if you will, and um, uh, played it, and the quintet seemed to like it, so that was fun. And then we played it for the kids, and they loved it, right? So, uh, you know, I had the added benefit of some really good tunes, so it was hard to miss. 
But um, so that started my arranging career. And what was really funny, um, the Naples Philharmonic was a, was a brand new orchestra. And they hired one of the best pop conductors who you know very well, Eric Kunzel, because you played under him, right? I did. With him. I, don't, I don't know if you know him, but you played under yeah, him. Yeah, I did. Yeah, so he became our pop conductor uh, in Naples. You know, this brand spanking new orchestra hires one of the best known pop conductors in the world. And suddenly, uh, we're playing all these killer arrangements, and he's looking for an arranger because it's like his probably fifth orchestra that he's in charge of, and he needs new charts all the time. And um, So he had heard that Jim Stevenson was an arranger because I had done like two Rascal Ted charts. So he called me in and said, hey, I have a Christmas concert coming up. Why don't you arrange this? And, and so I had to learn how to write for orchestra at that very moment, like get busy. And that was my, that be, that was my study from that point on, just sitting in the orchestra and writing for my friends. And so that's, uh, that's how I got started. And yeah, so, you know, I'm thinking, uh, okay, orchestra is one thing, but when you start to write for harp before <laughs> orchestral piano or keyboards or mallets it's like yeah. uh-oh you know where's my orchestration book yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. so was it kind of that same thing you gotta you gotta start doing some really quick research into uh, yeah this, this was pre-internet i think yeah it was totally well i mean the internet was around but we didn't use it the way we, we do it now so i bought the i think it's alfred bladder orchestration book I bought the bladder orchestration book so that was great. You just turn to page 50 that has the harp on. I'm, I'm making that up, but yeah, you can just look and see what you needed. But for me, I could just walk over to my harp player and, and, uh, and say, is this possible? And I tell this story a lot. So I don't, if anybody happens to listen to another podcast, I literally went over to the harp player and said, what are those things at the bottom? I did not know that harps had pedals on them to change the pitches. I just thought that, you know, like a piano, you do this. And, um, so that was a big learning curve, but, you know, then it becomes like a mathematical equation. Hey, how can I work the enharmonics on a harp? And it becomes kind of fun. And like I said, I could just go ask him if something was stupid. And he would tell me. <laughs> so uh, that was a nice bonus that I had yeah. living in the orchestra. So then, then comes the question, have you ever written anything where somebody's called you up and said, what the heck were you thinking? <laughs> you know, now, I, I say that, and then I'm thinking it's Rex when you wrote uh, Rex. <laughs> like, holy cow. Um, well, Rex came to, I mean, yeah, a lot of my trumpet music has some um, virtuosic requirements and technical and, and uh, endurance requirements, which is interesting because those were not my, I was good at technical playing, but endurance was not my forte. Uh, high notes were not my thing. But, you know, I, I end up writing for people who can do it. So I've written certainly some, some music that is harder than what I could have played. Um, so, yes, I get, I get called out for sure. Um, it's, your, it's all your fault. I mean, you guys are the ones who you play it. So then we're like, oh, that's possible. Yeah, okay. But, you know, this, this happened when I was working on my master's. Uh, you know, you're in the practice room and you're going through your routine, doing all these things that you never, ever do in performance. Yeah. Right. And then I have this composer, composition student approach me. He goes, hey, Larry, I wrote this piece. Will you play on it? And so he shows it to me. And it has a lot of the elements of, of my routine. You know, these yeah. two octave glisses and, 
and lip slurs that you only do. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. Like, uh, and I stupidly said, "Sure, I'll play." <laughs> oh, it was, it was horrible. It was just horrible. Well, it was just your warm-up, so how hard could it have been? Well, no. yeah, it was pretty hard. Or too hard for me to play you know, in front of anybody. I, I think, um, you know, because I was a, a performer for so long, uh, I mean, I started sitting in an orchestra when I was 10. And like I said, didn't quit until I was 38. So I'm very aware of what brings a performer joy and, and what makes something worth it. And so I, I'm not going to say I always succeed, but it's certainly – in pretty much the forefront of my brain to try to make the people who are actually doing the work, sitting in the chair, the hot lights on them and the audience out there and the conductor and all that sort of stuff. You know, I want to make them hopefully uh, feel like it's worth it. And not only worth it, but like um, enjoy, you know, enjoyable, a challenge where they feel like they're a better player because of what they played. Um, and you know, I, can, I can speak directly to that because I think the first time I had played any of your music was Compose Yourself. Yeah. Uh, what year did, did that come out? Well, I wrote it in 2002. I'm trying to remember. Did we do it in uh, Anderson or in... Um, uh, I've done it in Oregon. Anderson and down in Owensboro. That's Kentucky. right. Yep. Yeah. And, you know, everybody's done all the, the kiddie concerts and you try to program. You know, you can only do... Well, anyways, I get this piece, and I'm looking through it, and I'm thinking, oh, this looks fine. You know, oh, was it 13, 14 instruments? I mean, it's a fairly small orchestra. I have two versions, but the original was 15 player. Yeah. And I thought, okay, not just fun for the player, but really well-conceived for the audience. And so bravo on that. I mean, that's uh, hopefully that's been a huge success for you. But... You know, every if it gets programmed and I see it coming, you know, in the mail, I'm like, hooray! <laughs> on this one. Well, that that's good to hear. I mean, again, that that's just comes from sitting in the orchestra and doing a lot of those educational concerts, and somebody coming to me and saying, "Hey, here's the deal. We're going to be going to a lot of schools. So we're going to take 15 people out. It's basically every instrument of the orchestra." And wouldn't it be fun to do this and feature every instrument and but make it fun for the kids and interactive and all that sort of thing. So uh, it was somebody else's idea. They said, Jim, do this and, and run with it. So I spent the summer of 2002 doing it. And um, I think the Naples Philharmonic, where, who I originally wrote it for, they've played it 300 times. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> so, <laughs> but the, the coolest thing about that is I've had players who have done it all 300 times actually tell me that they still enjoy it. Mm -hmm. Which to me is like that, you know that's a big compliment. I, so I, yeah. I'm grateful when they say that. Maybe they're lying, but it's nice of them to say it anyway. So uh, is is there going to be a follow up to decompose yourself? <laughs> <laughs> Conduct yourself. Uh, I don't know. So yeah. yeah. Um. So you know, uh, I've got a 13 year old boy here who's studying piano. Just started a year and a half ago. Is in love with Liszt and Beethoven and listens to all these composers. And I, I'm listening to him practice slowly, and I'm thinking, you listen to Moonlight Sonata, not not the first movement, right, but the third movement, which is just furious. Right. And I think, could Beethoven actually play that himself? You know, he's writing this. And, and the answer is probably yes. I think so, yeah. 
You know, so then begs the question, uh, can you play everything that you write? Uh, well, I could until I stopped playing. So um, my, I mean, I want to back that up a little bit. Like my first trumpet concerto is pretty difficult. It's got some licks in it. Uh, all of which I did play through. So I knew they were possible. Uh, I think I might've even done it in one sitting once, but I never did it, you know, in front of an orchestra, in front of an audience for the conductor to keep in time, you know, all things that go into that. So that was 2003. Uh, I wrote the concerto for Rex, which you mentioned in what, 2010, I think. And I played through some of the licks, but that was right when I was quitting. And I certainly couldn't play any of the high stuff. And I couldn't do the improv, improv stuff, but I could play a lot of it, just not all at once. And then I quit. So anything after that, I, I haven't even had a chance to, to try. But um, I did perform my first sonata once, so I know that was possible for me. Um, but, you know, it's um, also not being able to play has given me a certain freedom in composing, I have to say, too, because I would often write with my own um, limitations in mind. So finally, when I freed myself up from playing and not worrying about whether I could slur up to a high D, which I can't, I never could, because I just didn't have that range. And, um, you know, stuff like that, whatever. Um, once, once I found out that um, I could just write for other people and let them do what they do, that freed me up a lot. And actually, I think made my music hopefully more interesting because it's just not written with me in mind. So Rex asked me to ask you about your piano skills. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll edit this out if you, if you want, don't want to answer. But he, he, he started laughing, you know, when I was talking to him about, about this. But, uh, uh, is he referring to the one time we played together? Well, you, well I, I think what came up was, uh, you know, we were talking about conductors, you know, or yeah. composers, good conductors. And yeah. then it went to our composers also good at, uh, at the piano. And, and that's when your name came up. So. I, um, <laughs> I'm laughing. No, it's, uh, I'm not a good piano player. I took five years from like age eight to 13. And so I know how my hands are supposed to be on a piano. And I know that there are limitations there too. And I'll play things in really slow motion. Um, but I'll tell you, we, so we did one gig together. I wrote a piece called Reflections, and it's for, um, I've done all sorts of versions now, but it was for trumpet and piano at one point. And he played it at a conference, played it on flugelhorn, and I said, well, I'll accompany you on piano. And I hadn't written a piano part. It was just me making stuff up at that point. I've since written an actual piano part. I don't think I've been more nervous in my life. <laughs> And so you can, it, there's a recording on my website of us doing it, or it's somewhere, it's on YouTube. And my tone is terrible. You know, at one point I hit a completely wrong chord and I just kind of go on like nothing happened. But I mean, yeah, it's pretty bad. Pedaling is awful. But my trick is to just kind of feel out on piano if something might be possible and then I move away to the computer and sort of take it from there. Well, and in all fairness, I will admit right here and now that I am horrible at piano. I only did good enough, well enough to pass my proficiencies. 
Yeah. Probably like a lot of people, right? <laughs> right. Well, you know, you've had, you've had other things on your mind, right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> so you've got all this music in your head. You're trying to get it out. Uh, not trying. You are getting it out. You're, you're putting it out there. Uh, do you find yourself um, writing in styles that you grew up with, or is this all, does it all just feel completely organic, completely original? Hmm. Um, little of both, but I'm, I'm somewhat of a classical composer, not, you know, classical period composer, but I, I am a, I am a fan of form and, and melodic writing and stretching tonalities, but not forgetting about tonalities. Um, those are important to me still. Um, but I think one thing about my style is that most of my music sounds different from each other. Um, all five of my trumpet concertos, for example, in my mind, do not resemble each other, other than that they make the trumpet player work quite a bit. But um, the styles of all five of them are very unique. Uh, and because that's because I'm always looking for the story of the individual I'm writing about or writing for or the story I'm writing about, like I wrote a, um, I think it's worthy for sure to mention Ryan Anthony, uh, given his passing a couple of weeks ago. Um, you know, I wrote a concerto for him and he wanted a concerto about his struggle and life with cancer. So that piece took on an entirely different sound world than anything else I'd ever written. Um, Rex, you know, Rex came to my house and, and, um, demo demonstrated some things for me and, you know, some intervallic patterns that he really likes to use. And so I wrote that concerto with those in mind. And first concerto I wrote for Jeff work and he loves, um, he's principal trumpet in Oregon symphony and we're old friends. And, and, uh, he, he would always send me recordings of cornet soloists from like 1905 and 1908, you know, just names like Bohemer Krill and these old time people had, who had crazy technique, just crazy technique. Their sounds are like as big as a, a pea, you know, like they're, um, could have been the recordings. Um, but anyway, so he loves that sort of stuff. So I wanted to make sure I incorporated like a modern cornet style into his concerto. And so, everything I write, I just go into this new world based on what the subject matter is. And then it reveals itself in a new sound. So I don't, if I can, so that's my style is just seeking a new sound, a new sound world. Um, which is a lot of fun for me. This is just a quick sponsor break to remind you to check out Messina covers for great custom case options, Eastman wins and SE Shires for exceptional quality from the professional model to the beginner model. Hammond Design for their incredible HD experience, and of course, Pickett Blackburn, providing you with a multitude of options for mouthpieces and trumpets. And now, back to Jim Stevenson. Do you try to mix things up uh, occasionally? You know, and, and I don't mean like giving the melody to the tuba, like you mentioned earlier. <laughs> but, uh, uh, you know, it's like, oh, I've really wanted to use this orchestration, this combination. This is the perfect piece for this. Or... Uh, maybe I'm yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't know if I would put it that way. It's more like, hey, I haven't tried doing this yet. Let's try that here. You know, I, I'm very conscious of trying not to become a, 
habitual composer or wrecking. Oh, there goes Jim again, blending this and this and this. I've heard that before. So I'm always looking for new ways to, to, to mix things up, like you said. Um, but, you know, and I will say in my career, there are times where I purposefully try to find a new sound that maybe doesn't have to do with the subject matter I'm writing about. Usually I'm unhappy with that. Like, I'll do an experiment and that teaches me, okay, I don't like that style, you know? So it's like, I have to go through the process of writing a piece in a certain style to finally realize that that's not me. That's not my story. Yeah. I, I have heard uh, some of your bigger symphonic works uh, or symphonic band. I know like the Indianapolis, uh, oh shoot, uh, Charlie Conrad's group. Oh, the Indiana yeah. Wind Symphony. Yeah. And you had actually come down, I think, to rehearse. I conducted it, yeah. My second time. conducted. Oh, I yeah. didn't realize that. Yeah. Um, yeah, you know, and it, I can't say that it reminds me of a, a certain styles, other than it's your style, you know? That one, um, again, because of what it was about, that piece is a, I wrote after my mother passed away. Hmm. And uh, it was a very difficult but sort of life-affirming process for me to process losing my mother and then to put that into music. And um, the, the whole piece is literally a 20-minute journey about that experience. And uh, I even incorporated a voice, a mezzo-soprano voice, which is that of my mother kind of singing and saying, everything's going to be okay. And just, again, by using these elements that I otherwise wouldn't have done it just shaped the, the sound of that piece and uh, has probably become the most meaningful piece i've written so far um but yeah i got to come down to indy and conduct it and and uh, i've conducted it several places in addition to that and it's always a great way to just kind of connect with audiences and, and musicians which is my favorite part because yeah that's my that's my life. That's my former life. <laughs> you know, I've run into you at least once at an ITG. I mean, I know you like to get out there and, and, uh, and of course, you want to do the, the good PR thing, right? And, and make sure your name gets out there. But uh, I, I want to go back to that piece you were just talking about and how you wrote it. Was it in, uh, in memoriam? How, how would you talk about the way you, you wrote that? Well, to be completely honest, I... I couldn't write it for about a month. Um, it was it was for the Marine Band, uh, and I had a deadline. And um, my mom died in April of 2016, and um, I thought that it would be easy to write music based on my mother dying. And the complete opposite was the case for about a month. I couldn't figure anything out, and so I finally uh, went to the piano and. Um, for whatever reason, slammed down a hard low E flat chord with my left hand, an octave, not a chord, but an octave, and then just kind of this crunchy, screaming, oh, woe is me sort of chord on top of that. Um, and then I said to myself, okay, I can work with that. Not only that, I'm gonna take that E flat and I'm gonna force myself not to get back to E flat again until I've figured this out. So the entire piece is a journey of that opening E flat to, to an arrival at E flat major, like 20 minutes later. 
And in doing so, you know, it, if you, if you make rules like that, it forces you to dig deep. It forces you to look for other ways to handle problems and, and technical issues that come up and sound issue, you know, theoretical issues that come up. So, um, and I have to say, when I finally got to that E flat chord 20 minutes later, uh, I was, uh, a mess. <laughs> I mean, it was like, I, I was crying at the piano and it was like, Oh, you know, mom, I did it. You know, that's sort of, I don't want to sound too cliche, but it was, I had one of those moments. Yeah. Um, so was that E flat arbitrary or, or was there significance too? I, uh, it was relatively arbitrary, but I wouldn't be surprised if there was a little bit of a, let's find a good key for band while I hit this low note, you know, I didn't hit a B for example. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> and so I probably thought to myself, all right, this, you know, maybe I haven't written a lot of music in E flat major at that, at that point in my career. There were probably a few thoughts that went into it, but I hit that, hit the chord, and then I was kind of off, off to the races. Mm -hmm. um, but it was, uh, uh, fun is the wrong word, but it was a very intense Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I can't imagine what that's like to be able to pour yourself into that kind of piece. Um, I mean, I can get a sense, you know, of hearing and watching you talk about this, uh, you know, mm -hmm. the meaning for it, the meaning of it. Um, yeah, it takes a lot out of you. Um, I don't want to have to write music like that a lot uh, because, you know, you do it and you're just like, man, I it's so rewarding, but to dig that deep also is just exhausting. And so big, big feeling of phew afterward. But, uh, you know, and see, this is now I'm thinking I would want to play that piece now knowing the, how it was inspired, how it came about, because that would change hopefully at least the way I play it. And hopefully everybody else around me. You know, I think context. It's not like you're just sitting down. Okay, here's a march. We're just going to do this. You know, right? Yeah. And well, it's all the repeats. You know, this is <laughs> you know, and knowing that journey. You know, and, and I think um, I, I wish uh, I wish there were more opportunity to know that really about a lot of pieces in music, you know, the real classics, right. You know, right? More than just the surface information about the Emperor Concerto. Right is you know what what did Beethoven really have in mind you know what kind of angst and that sort of thing you know. yeah well now that I do this for a living it is my assumption that every composer works this way and so I know exactly what you're saying mm -hmm. uh, because I know that I put that sort of hidden code if you will into every piece I write and and so I I, I imagine all of us composers do. And we are just hoping that people will meet us halfway and, and seek it out and, and discover it. And then have these, we can have these conversations with people. And But, you know, if they don't, hopefully they just like it at, at the surface value as well. But I can tell you that um, it's there for those who want to find it. Uh, and I'm pretty sure all composers work that way. And like you said, I would love to, uh, to go back and chat with those folks and say, hey, tell me about this one, you know? Right. Right. I, I, well, first of all, I would have to make him make sure I'm fluent in whatever language. Because <laughs> otherwise, it's going to be a really awkward, awkward time. This is true. Say play. <laughs> uh, okay, so you know, uh, the first time you hear your voice on a recording, it's it's awkward, right? 
or the first time you see yourself on video. Oh, yeah. Right? So what about the first time you hear one of your pieces performed? Yeah. Um, well, the, here's the worst part. Not the worst part, because you're so grateful to be there, but the first rehearsal is so... I don't even like to go to first rehearsals because we know, by we I mean the composers, we know what we're hoping it's going to sound like. And sometimes it's easy to forget that the musicians are just playing it for the first time. They're going to play wrong notes. They're going to play, you know, they're going to side read things a little bit. And so it doesn't sound good. And you're just wanting to stand up and scream and say, no, please, it, it's better than this, I promise. And so usually by the second rehearsal, it sounds you know how musicians are. You guys figure things out so quick. So by the second rehearsal, everything's fine. And, and then they start to dig in and, and realize the shape of it. Yeah, but the whole, the other answer to your question is that um, we composers, our classroom is sort of every performance, right? And we don't get a performance every day of a new piece. So sometimes it's, especially now, let's not even talk about right now, but sometimes it's a month or two months or maybe six months between premieres of a piece. And, and that's when you learn the most. That's when you say, oh boy, that didn't work the way I wanted to. So then you have to, composers have a choice whether to then revise that piece or to just put that knowledge into the next piece. Um, and I'm usually the one who's putting that knowledge into the next piece just because I have to keep moving forward. But it's... Um, I wish there was a, that's why I, I wish I had studied composition in school. I want to delete this part so that people will, won't write me off as a, <laughs> a fool. But uh, yeah, you know, I was a trumpet player in school, so I didn't study composition. So my, I wish I had had those opportunities to really learn quicker, you know, to have a teacher tell me maybe twice a week that something I'm doing is stupid. But um, yeah, it's a, hopefully most of the time it's it's spot on and it's the way we want it. but there are those times where it's like ah darn it that's not one it just reminded me uh, recording sessions will go in and oftentimes uh, the composer is either in the booth or on the podium yeah. and we'll rehearse and uh, then somebody will stop and say hey I've got uh, B flat on beat four. Did did you mean for that to happen? And I've gotten so tired of that. I'm thinking, you know what? If they wrote it, play it. They don't like the way it sounds. They'll say something about it, you know. And it just drives me nuts when we get into a session, and and this happens. I don't know if you've been, encountered this. And sometimes, you know, they they do find a mistake. Oh yeah, that. You know, when I extracted it from Sibelius or Finale, you know, da da da, da whatever happened. Yeah. Um, it just drives me nuts to, to hear. I'm thinking the composer, he chose that note or she chose that note. Leave it alone. Yeah. I mean, it, 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 there's two answers. I mean, it is a fair question sometimes because these computer programs, as advanced as they are, they still, no matter how good you are at the program, they still will throw you a curveball and an accidental will get left off. I don't want to go into the techniques of how that happens, but it just does. Yeah. And so sometimes that's a very fair question. Um, but I have had that certainly happen where it is definitely, I like to put major sevenths in the bass note sometimes. 
which which uh, in my in my world keeps the music propelled forward and gives it a fresh, nice sound. Um, and so I can't tell you how many times I've had those who are playing the bass line saying, "Do you really mean that A natural in that B flat major chord? You know, did you mean that?" And yes, can't you hear how cool it is? <laughs> so, <laughs> so that's, uh, but. Um, yeah, it's, but then there are times where there are people who say it just because they want you to know that they've, they've noticed something and they want to speak up about it. That happens. But. Uh, you know, I was, uh, was it 92, 93, and I can't remember the name of, this was when I first encountered uh, computer programming for music. Um, might have been Make Music or yeah. a precursor to Finale or something well, like that. Well, they own Finale. They're, they're okay. yeah. Okay but uh, early 90s, and it was a chore to put. And of course, the computer speeds were nowhere near they are where they are now. And so even trying to render anything, final product just took forever. But now, these days, it's so easy. And uh, Jim Beckel, uh, here mm -hmm. in town, you know, was a fantastic writer himself. Yeah. You know, I'm talking to him, and he's, he actually assigns all the orca orchestra sounds. So his MIDI, product that goes out sounds like a live symphony orchestra yeah i should talk to him i yeah but it, it, to me that's amazing that that you can do that um i, I don't i don't have that kind of patience <laughs> if i'm doing an arrangement and uh, it's going to sound like midi you know? yeah i mean we and not only that we can manipulate things to even make it sound better than it should i mean because <laughs> On a, on a computer, yeah, I, I do that as well. I assign all the, the orchestra, all the orchestral sounds. But like for whatever reason, Finale believes that harp should be really loud, so you can hear the harps. An entire orchestra can be playing, and you can hear the harp clear as a, you know, oh that sounds really cool. So you, if you haven't ever been in an orchestra or done much orchestrating, you could easily make a mistake in that regard. And so there are balance things that we can adjust to make it sound better than it should. Yeah, but it's very helpful. It's an extremely helpful tool to play back. So what are you work, working on these days? What what uh, is there one more than one project going on or do you just focus on one at a time? Um, I I do just focus on one at a time, but I have probably um, somewhere between 15 and 20 that are kind of oh, wow. on the schedule. Um, so I'm happy to say I'll be busy for a while. But like I said earlier, it's it's a hodgepodge of things, which is what, what makes it really fun. You know, you're, you're finishing one, you're like, oh, I get to do this other thing next. And, uh, piano concerto is in the future. And I think I mentioned I just finished a ballet score. I'm writing a concerto for euphonium, horn, and wind ensemble, and, and uh, solo trumpet work, um, solo trombone work, several band pieces. Um, so let's go back to the ballet for a second. Yes. How does that work? Do you get do you get the libretto? Well, wait, no, that's that's opera. Uh, well, how, so I'm going to edit that out. It'll sound like an idiot. That works for me. The storyboard. I mean, storyboard. thank you. Okay, so yeah. there is there is something. Yeah, that you absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Um, I now know how it happened, but it, for a long time I had no idea how they came across my name. Uh, so this is the San Francisco Ballet. And Let's hope it, it wasn't through the phone book and they had to work their way through. <laughs> it might have. <laughs> well, I was very curious. I, I didn't know for almost a year how they even found me. 
Um, but I got a call it was in completely out of the blue and they said, hey, uh, we've, our choreographer has discovered your music and she really likes it and I'd like to have you write a piece for the ballet. And so then, you know, discussions ensue and you, once you figure all that out, she sent me, um, actually, I have it right here. Not that anybody would be able to see it, but you can see it. So this is the storyboard, little stick figures. Yeah. And what's cool about this, um, there's 19 scenes, so that is organized for me. And then at the bottom right here, not that anybody can see it, she said how long each scene should be. So it's like, hey, I need a minute of this, or I need four minutes of this. And, um, but that's all, you know, that's what I got. And she said, all right, go to town and, and write the music. Um, but again, as I said earlier, because it's this story, right? I get to go into a world that I otherwise wouldn't have been in and actually tell a story, which I'm finding is something I absolutely love to do. And uh, so it's a 40 minute ballet and it's the story of uh, a woman in the twenties named Fanny Bryce. I don't know if you ever saw the movie Funny Girl. Yeah. It's the same story, not the same story, but the same character. Um, a comedian actress in the twenties who rises to fame. And, um, so all the music kind of has this vaudeville character to it and uh, early jazz. And, and I got to write the full orchestra, which is nice. So it's, um, I just finished it about a week ago. And uh, so, you know, I think about Tchaikovsky and Nutcracker and you have character dances, mm-hmm. uh, anything like that? In this? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, because there are very, there are two main characters, and they have their pot to do at one point. And then there's one scene where he gets his solo, and there's one scene where or a couple where she gets her solo. And and you're writing music, and you and you're sort of also imagining they can't be spinning all the time; they have to have rest. You know, <laughs> you know they can't jump twenty thousand times. So you're at least I was writing music, trying to imagine if I was up on stage, how I'd want the flow to be, and and um, also imagining if I was in the orchestra, what, what I'd want to play. Because I've played a ton of ballets. I played in the pit all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, so all that's in there, but I love focusing um, on the characters and giving them a, a persona, bouncing them off each other and all that sort of thing. Of course, you know Appalachian Spring. Yep. Ballet for Martha. Yep. Uh, I did a master's project on this, and uh, there are character dances, and most people don't think about that as I mean there are there's specific sequences throughout that ballet and I I likened it I mentioned Nutcracker I likened it to um, Nutcracker for my project and the professor said I never thought about the Copeland this way before I mean it was an automatic A which made me really happy (laughs) you know um, that piece when you know the character dances and you, you watch the ballet those the music takes on a whole new meaning. I mean, it's a great piece just to close your eyes and listen to. But, you know, then when you understand the visual, well, I know I'm, I'm saying what's what doesn't need to be said. I mean, it's a whole different, whole new ball game, right? Yeah. yeah. Imagine how many of those things there are out there that are waiting to be discovered like that as well. Yeah. But I've also written a concerto based on uh, Martha Graham. My One of my trumpet concertos is telling the story of Martha Graham. No kidding. Which yeah. was the title of that one? It's called Martha Uncaged. Not the best title. Uncaged. I don't even know if that's a word. 
but she, when she was four, or no, she wasn't four. When she was young, she went to a zoo in New York and uh, saw a lion pacing back and forth in its cage and then doing its turn. Um, so that, and then that gave her the idea of how she would posture herself as a dancer later. She would always, you know, shoulders back and very proud, barefoot. And uh, so that my, my concerto starts with that sort of walking across the stage and a turn. And she, the fury of Marcia kind of gets, not the fury, but she releases herself into the world and becomes a huge you know, success innovation. So that's Martha on cage, but completely ba- I read her biography and yeah. based on her love affairs and things like that. Yeah. So this, this makes me wonder too, um, you know, she's got this experience with this lion, you know, she probably tucks that away for a while. What about you and your ideas? I mean, do you have a notebook or, you know, some sort of recording device? How do you, you know, let's say you're walking through, uh, Home Depot one day and all of a sudden, you know, the next great lick <laughs> comes through. How do you, how do you, do you, you you've, you've nailed it. That's kind of what happens to us composers. We'll be doing something completely, completely amusical and then we'll hear it. Oh my gosh, how am I going to remember that? So luckily we all have these devices, our little phones. Yeah. My, mine is filled with um, me singing ideas into it or uh, i do have a sketchbook somewhere around here um i have discovered that i don't remember them if i don't get them down somehow i can't tell you how many times i'm going to sleep at night "Ah, there it is perfect piece i'll remember it in the morning it's gone so i do try to get them down one way or another as soon as i can for sure is there a snippet of a tune out there that you've had forever and you're just you can't develop it beyond what oh interesting question no that no i don't think so because usually for me whatever that snippet is goes into whatever piece i'm writing and then maybe i'll steal from that later if i think it belongs in a different piece um i don't think i'm the only composer to do that but if there's a lick i really like and and whatever piece i wrote it in before maybe isn't getting as much play as I'd like just for whatever reason. Like, ha, I like that tune. I'm going to steal that one back. So, so that, that makes me, you know, you, you mentioned early on in the interview, um, Stravinsky said you should, what is it? Composers should steal. Uh, great composers, you know, good composers borrow, great composers steal. So uh, have you stolen anything from John Williams? <laughs> ha, not um, only only when I do so intentionally. Like I, I once was asked to write a, um, I actually just put it on Facebook three days ago, two days, what day is today? Anyway, I put it out there on the fourth, I put it on the fourth because I was once asked to write a piece combining the sounds of John Philip Sousa and John Williams for an American concert. And so I very, well actually there's another example too, but so I very consciously knew that I was writing a John Williams style because I had been given freedom to do so. And it was interesting for me to try it. You know, why not? I, yeah. Let's see if I can do it. So that one's called Stars and Stripes Fanfare. But the other one, um, my first etude book that I wrote in 2010, um, I don't know if we've ever talked about this project. or no, I, don't, I don't know about this. Um, mine are called Day Tudes. I've written three of these books. Um, and this was, we talked about Easter one, earlier when I was trying to get in shape for Easter. 
um, I was so bored as a Trump, speaking of the trumpet player, you can even see me, I'm working with my fingers. I was so bored doing the standard warmups. Now I'm a composer, right? This is 2010, I'm a composer. And so I was like, ah, I don't want to play stamp. I don't want to play Schlossberg. I'm going to just make up an etude every day. And so I decided, I'm getting back to the Williams, by the way, but I decided that I would um, make up an etude, but also I would invite other trumpet players to receive these etudes every single day when I finished them, if they wanted to subscribe. So I think at that time, like 30 or 40 trumpet players signed on and they would get an email every day in their, you know, at nine in the morning, I would have written my day two and I would send it off to them and they'd have their own private world premiere. And the etude, the day two, would be about whatever was going on in my life or whatever was going on in the world. So in February of 2010, the um, Winter Olympics were happening. And I was like, I'm going to see if I can write an etude in the style of John Williams. Because uh, you know, the Olympics and all that sort of thing. So I wrote one which was very much like him. Um, it has since gone on to become, maybe I should do more of this. One of my more um, sought after pieces within that tiny market of Jim Stevenson um, because uh, I later turned it into a trumpet ensemble piece which was dedicated to um, Jeannie Potius. It's a long story, but she had returned from uh, Haiti. Is that what the earthquake was? Uh, forgive me, Jeannie, for not remembering. I think it was Haiti. She had returned from an earthquake. She had been caught in an earthquake, broke her leg. She was down there helping trumpet players and musicians great teacher and when she returned to Boston a trumpet ensemble was there waiting in the terminal and played this fanfare that I've written for her and I called it fanfare for an angel uh, I played that piece see? and it was based on that etude that I had written in 2010 so fanfare fan, thank you fanfare for an angel is very much in the John Williams style on purpose and um has been played by uh, quite a few trumpet players because it, yeah. it lays well on the horn because I used to play the instrument. So. Yeah, <laughs> so. No, I, I remember one of my former students uh, uh, got married, you know, and, and called me and said, hey, will you play at my wedding? And I said, sure. And he said, well, there's this piece by Steven, Jim Stevenson. And he sent me the YouTube link. And <laughs> And this was for trumpet and organ, the one that I did. Oh, you did that one? Okay, all right. And and after that, I thought, okay, I go. I want my trumpet ensemble to play this. So then I bought the uh, the trumpet ensemble arrangement, and we played that uh, a couple of times. And uh, you know, it's you can't put uh, freshmen on no. <laughs> the, on the first part on that. No, you can't. <laughs> it's a lot of fun to play. Um, yeah, so. Uh, well, see, again, the story behind that, the difference it makes, you know, it's not just, hey, here's another piece. Yeah. Again, in context, that, that changes so it, everything. It was so cool because the trumpet players in Boston, they actually got permission. You know, this is post 9-11. So they got permission to go into the terminal so that when so that when Jeannie came walking down the jetway and into the terminal, they were there waiting and they greeted her with... I hope they're a little fanfare. And, uh, what you was know, her reaction? I wasn't there, but I'm told that it was, you know, she was in tears or, or 
you know, shocked or, you know, just, it was a good reaction. Yeah. And, um, uh, and then Ryan, I think you've probably seen, maybe that's the video you're referencing. Ryan Anthony put a really nice video as part of, part of his Cancer Blows um, project. You know, he had Chris Martin and Dave Bilger and Mike Sack and Ryan Anthony yeah. playing the fanfare. So it's, um, it's got a few hits because he had some pretty heavy hitters. <laughs> it's funny. It's almost, well, it's, it's 11 months since I interviewed Ryan. Wow. And, um, I looked on SoundCloud this morning. I'm definitely editing this out. Um, his interview went from like 140 downloads. It's been, it's jumped over a hundred more in the last little bit. And I tell you, uh, it, it still stings, you know, yeah. it just, and his absence on Facebook, you know, that presence, there was that reassurance, you know, every day or every other day he would post something, you know, with it damned uh, chemo needle stuck in him or and wow you know it's uh, it's is devastating yeah but doesn't it give you like inspiration to carry on I mean it, well, absolutely yeah it, it's like if he could do that why how can I complain about this for eight years yeah yeah I um you can still edit this out if you want but I, I played the um I was doing a talk with Interlock and young composers and um, I played them the concerto that I had written for Ryan because I wanted to, I want, you know, he had just passed away and, and I wanted to share with them like how I approach composing from a storytelling point of view. And so that was a pretty obvious story. very easy to follow. Let me put it that way. And I was bawling. I mean, I'm talking to 33, you know, high school kids and I'm supposed to be this adult and I'm just like, I'm wiping my face. Just, oh. I'm watching Ryan masterfully handing this, this major workout while his body is going through. I don't know if you ever shook hands with him while he's going through the treatment or hugged him, but his body was shaking with all the drugs that were in there and how he could play trumpet in the midst of all that and inspire the rest of us. It just amazes me. So, Ryan, <laughs> what a what a what a figure, and and I told him I said you've galvanized the Trump community, uh, as if we didn't have enough to mm -hmm. talk about amongst ourselves. But you know you brought us closer together. Yeah. Uh, it's just what a life and what a, what a legacy too. That's just um, yeah. Uh, I'm going to have to move on. It's, it's still hard to think about. And I wasn't even, you know, relatively, I wasn't close to him the way Jens and, and many others were. And it's like, oh my gosh, if, if I could be moved that much, you know, they've got to be, they've got to be so distraught at this point. Yeah, it's, it's not fair. It's not fair. No, it's not. Um, and, uh, you know, Wayne Bergeron now is, is out of chemo. He's going, gone through some stuff and it's like, wow. You know, it's not going to end. And, you know, I, I really hope that Cancer Blows is around. Right. For, I, I really want to make sure that that keeps going forward. It's it's so worthwhile. I agree. I would imagine, Matt, I would imagine, I think Nikki deserves, you know, Ryan's wife deserves some time to, to not have to think about it for a while. But hopefully she'll reach out to someone if she doesn't do it herself and and. So, well, um, 
It's like, how do you turn back from that? Um, well, I'll tell you, Ryan would want us to. Ryan would say, carry on, so. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we talked about it in that interview it, because how can you not? You know, it, it couldn't just be about Canadian brass and Dallas yeah. and all that. It had, to, it had to be about that. And he was more than willing uh, to talk and to share and, you know, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Yeah. So, um, speaking of the good, the bad, and the ugly, did you see Ennio Morricone passed away? I, I was just going to say that was a rather timely uh, phrase uh, you, just, you just uttered. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I did. You know, here's another iconic composer. I mean, um, wow. I mean, just how many different tunes right. can you think of and attribute to him? And, and you know what? This is going to happen to you, Jim. What? I'm going to die? No, well, <laughs> that's not what I meant. You know, this is, you know, like Beethoven's infamous bop, 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 bop. And I'm singing it in the wrong key, I'm sure. But, you know, they're going to, you're going to have all these famous licks, you know, attributed to you. Uh, if, if I were to be so lucky, it would be time well spent. But um, it, it literally is just like you when you're playing. I mean, it's, it's living in the moment. And uh, if anything happens to carry on beyond that moment, that's that's wonderful. But uh, uh, you know the metaphor: the the journey is what it's all about. You know, if I start writing music thinking, "Boy, I want to make sure I leave a legacy," then I'm going to fail. You know, it's yeah. I'm going to make sure this one sticks. Then the piece is going to be awful. So right. it's all about just finding that <clears throat> that inner something to to dig into and, and just keep. You know, well, you know, it just popped into my head. Um, another happy accident you know what if every every composition was like uh bob ross painting you know? <laughs> oh, i'm gonna put a tree here and then all of a sudden it transforms everything you know so well this has been a lot of fun you know i i, I we've crossed paths you know for a minute or two at an itg conference or place but it's nice to be able to sit and actually chat with you for a little while absolutely i'm i'm, I'm thrilled you were willing to take a risk and have a quasi non-trumpet player uh in your interview and and uh you know no it was it's great to to chat and um i feel like uh you know trumpet is still my home base even though i'm not doing it um i so much of my career has been because of playing instrument uh or who i knew while playing instrument so i don't want to forget that for sure so yeah it's really fun to revisit a lot of stories and people and things like that. Well, we'll have to revisit in a couple of years or so and see what, uh, what you've written in the meantime. And, uh, of course, you know, you'll be, you'll be making millions of dollars, a composition at that point. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, you do that devil's tale. I don't live too far away. You know, when the world gets back to normal, maybe you can do my Stravinsky sequel and then I can come and, uh, yell at you for, uh, playing a B flat where it should have been a B natural or something. <laughs> <Perfect>. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, thank you very much for the time. I appreciate it. It's been a thank you, Larry. It's been a real joy. Well, that's where my interview with Jim Stevenson ends, but there's a little bit more to be heard. I took a small portion of this interview out and made that exclusively available for my Patreon patrons. You can find out more about how to receive that benefit and others at patreon.com slash studio HFL. 
Again, to those who are already patrons, thank you, and I appreciate your continued support. Another reminder to visit Apple Podcasts and to leave both a star rating and a review, and please visit the Studio HFL YouTube channel and subscribe. This has been a production of Powell Music and has been supported by the generosity of Messina Covers, Eastman Winds, S.E. Shires, Hammond Design, and Pickett Blackburn. Once again, I'm your host, Larry Powell. Grateful that you spent some time here today with me and Jim Stevenson. Be sure to come back for the next interview, which will feature an Elvis tribute artist, Gene DiNapoli. A fun interview, to be sure, and that's coming out in episode 108. Have a great day, and see you next time. <laughs>